Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. Well, friends, we've made it. 2020 was a marathon of suffering, loss, struggle, and grief. It was a year of making the best of bad situations, with Zoom funerals and long-distance holiday dinners. It was a year of losing people without getting to say goodbye, and a year of shuffling loans and gifts between friends to keep people fed. It was a year of mass death, which we know will continue. It was also a year when we had what we always have, the ability to work collectively to solve problems, to care for one another, and to demand a better world. As many of you know, we began this show only weeks before the pandemic hit the United States last winter. We thought we knew what we wanted this podcast to be, and then suddenly we were living in a different world. So we invited people on this show who we believed could help us light the way forward. And I believe they did. I am really grateful to the guests we had this year, including some of the early episodes that a lot of you have probably never heard or read. So we are going to revisit some of their words today, because while there are many things we are going to want to leave behind in 2020, I think these are all insights that we are going to want to take with us. So the first person whose thoughts I would like to return to is L.A. Kaufman, an organizer and historian who was one of our first guests on the show. I'm a huge fan of L.A.'s book, Direct Action, Protest, and the Reinvention of American Radicalism, and I think that every activist should read it. Last January, we talked about direct action as an exercise of the imagination, and also about the realities of organizing. I talked a bit about how the disarmament of our imaginations is one of the most successful acts of violence that this system has ever perpetrated, uh, to which L.A. had this to say. When I... When I think about organizing, um, I always think I do a mental, sometimes I just do this on the board, but I always have a mental map in my head where I put up first winning is the top line. Below that is movement building and below that is organization building. Um, They're all things that we need and to do any of them, we need a lot of tactics and tools, but winning is the ultimate goal whatever winning looks like. And there's a lot of ways one can think about what it means to win. And to me, having that framework um, helps me when I'm approaching an action, not fall into one of the most common traps of organizing, which is to kind of fall in love with your tactics or to confuse your tactics with principles. So there are forms of direct action that our movements have taken that, that can be really powerful, like occupations, for instance, that aren't appropriate in all contexts and that aren't going to bring you closer to winning if that they you know, are, become these, these kind of imaginary lines that we create ourselves in the world of direct action. So I'm always... Uh, even though I think that ultimately movements facing long odds need to really use outsider tactics to leverage power and to win, I'm never dogmatic about also sometimes using 
those tactics that are inside the rules or inside the box. Like sometimes, you know, you need, sometimes you need to write letters to your representatives as the first step in a campaign or as an important step in a campaign. Um, as, as you note, if you disarm your imagination and you can only imagine standard civics textbooks uh, ways of participating, you're never going to get to winning. But similarly, if you decide that, you know, blockades are radical and badass, and so they must be used in all contexts, you're not going to win either. And in thinking about what it means to win, I also came back to the words of my friend Shane Burley, who was an author, a Truth Out contributor, and a regular guest on the show. Shane and I have often discussed something that's going to be of crucial importance in the new year, that neoliberalism and the defense of institutions will not save us. We have been through so much under Trump that some people find the idea of taking a wait-and-see approach to the Biden administration quite tempting, even though a moment of potential is actually cause for a full-court press rather than retreat. So where does this desire come from? Some of it is the product of fatigue, but also organizing can be hard, and it is not work this society prepares us for. Capitalism and individualism splinter our collective power, which makes us more vulnerable to structural violence. People have been conditioned to expect the worst from each other and to fear each other. But overcoming that fear and making human connections can actually lead to great relief in hard times. You know, what, one of the things is that people, when provided with no real alternative, will often just take what's offered to them in matters of survival or what they think are going to be matters of survival. And what kind of organizing for a different world requires is a great deal of faith in yourself and your community that by doing this, it will be better. And that's a really scary thing when you have no experience doing it whatsoever. You have no reason to believe that this kind of uh, action, trusting other people, is going to bring people together through it. Um, and so I, I think like we can't hold off until crisis sets in and then think we're going to intervene on people's behavior. We have to start talking about what those solutions look like now and also what happens when we don't. Because that's the inevitability of climate chaos is having a border imperialism of having like this crushing kind of targeted force on uh, immigrants and certain groups of folks that whoever are going to be decided um, by the apparatus of the state or the parties or the social movements. And we have to have a united force on it. Recognizing what the moment demands of us can be jarring. Trump amplified the great horrors of our time. But those horrors were already there. As we saw in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in the U.S., the housing collapse and other disasters, this system does not prioritize our survival. It prioritizes capitalism, which largely functions in opposition to our well-being. The climate crisis has provided especially jarring evidence that capitalism is a global death march. Earlier this year, I spoke with Vanamali Hermans, a mutual aid organizer in Australia about the historic apocalyptic wildfires that consumed vast swaths of the Australian landscape earlier this year. The cycle of collapse and neglect is so predictable and deeply embedded within capitalism that you'll notice as you listen to her speak that for the most part, she could just as easily be talking about COVID-19. I think it's starting to hit 
average people who may not be politically engaged or who may not acknowledge the urgency of the climate crisis um, and for them to be like, this is what life is going to be like now and we actually need to prepare and it's not good enough to prepare as individuals. And that has been really heartening too. I think a lot of people instinctually know I can't just get masks for my family. Like I need to help. We need to, you know, we need to collaborate and do things together, which has been really inspiring as well. So I am a disabled person myself and my mum was also a disabled woman. Um, She recently passed away in a hospital in my city after medical negligence and she was living in a group home at the time, so I just put a group home with four or five other disabled women. And I just think about if she was still alive during this situation, like what would have been the response by her house, her institution she lived in? What would have been the response by her support workers? And I think it would have been really, really poor. And she had respiratory issues, so she would have been at an incredible vulnerability to this. And, yeah, they, they would have done nothing and I think too about the ACT government the state government in my city they just don't give a shit (laughs) and I think uh as community organizers and as people who are on the left we acknowledge that government will not intervene that we need to create mutual aid networks ourselves that we need to do these things ourselves and we hold that commitment but it is completely different or at least I've found it's completely different when you actually are going through a crisis and even though you hold that commitment and you hold that knowledge that government won't do anything you kind of wait for it to still happen like you expect at least they'll have some kind of response I'm not going to be politically happy with the response but it will happen but nothing happened so it's completely different to actually see with your own two eyes just nothing you know absolutely no acknowledgement and it took us pressuring the government to even have a meeting with them and within that meeting like the strategy from our public health organization in our city and from the government broadly was just we don't want to create public anxiety so we're not going to acknowledge this is a public health crisis and that we're not prepared to deal with this so we're not going to yeah it's overwhelming it was a very despairing moment for me I think and it's not even not coming to save you a lot of the time it is actively disposing of you we've we've seen in for instance um one of the bushfires hit a town in victoria called malacuda and a lot of pictures went viral i think maybe you've seen it of that uh picture of a red sky and a boy on a boat wearing a p2 mask so that was in one of the really severely hit areas where people had to evacuate to the beach and the navy had to come in and rescue people from the beach and then take them up the coast on the navy boats and from what I saw, it was like able-bodied people first. You know, it's like we'll we'll come back for disabled people later. I was reading a Sims Invalid essay the other night because I was trying to calm myself down and trying to read a little bit more about disability justice and climate justice. Um, and the essay was talking about how often disabled people, are, you know, the canaries in the mine, were the people who kind of signal the alarm and feel some of the first effects of climate change, and we let other people know about those effects (laughs) but often you know it comes at the expense of disabled lives in thinking about who is being left behind in this time of collapse we would be remiss if we didn't address the crisis that is currently playing out in u.s prisons and detention centers 
We know that conditions in jails, prisons, and detention centers were already torturous, and that the situation has spiraled out of control under the pandemic. Last spring, I talked to Alan Mills, the executive director of the Uptown People's Law Center in Chicago. UPLC is one of too few organizations that is fighting for imprisoned people in this moment. The situation was bad uh, last spring when Alan and I spoke, and it is much worse now. I know this is a hard subject, and that most people don't want to think about these things right now, but what's happening in this country's cages is an atrocity, and I believe that one day there will be a reckoning. We have built this problem over the last 50 years, starting really in the early 1970s. We began the trend towards mass incarceration, where we incarcerated millions and millions of people. We currently have over 2 million people locked in our prisons and jails uh, throughout the country. And that is unprecedented worldwide and certainly in the history of this country. We now have about seven times as many people in prison as we had in the early 1970s. So packing people into small spaces is in and of itself a a recipe for disaster and has been for years. Uh, This is not the first outbreak that's happened in prison. We've seen that certainly with tuberculosis. We've seen that with the regular old flu that comes around. So nothing here is new. But I I would go beyond that. We have also underinvested, perhaps is the right word, but we certainly haven't taken care of the people that we put behind prison walls. Illinois is a particularly good example of that, where the medical care in this state has been horrific for decades. About five years ago, Illinois' spending per prisoner was towards the very bottom of the U.S. states. Uh, We were down at about 47. In terms of the ratio between staff and prisoners, medical staff and prisoners, we were 49th of 50. We've improved a little bit, so maybe now we're in the higher 40s, but we're still way down at the bottom of the stack. Uh, We at the Uptown People's Law Center um, sued about the medical care that was provided in prisons a decade ago, long before anybody thought about COVID-19 or the coronavirus or any, any of these other things. We just weren't treating really, really basic stuff. I can remember vividly a prisoner that I met with that I'd been corresponding for a while with, and he'd been complaining about the lack of medical care down in Tams Correctional Center, our Supermax prison, now thankfully closed. And he said that when I was up at Stateville, I got a a prostate test and they told me my PSA levels were elevated. They said it wasn't bad, but that I should have it checked every year to make sure it didn't get worse. Before any kind of follow-up, he got transferred into TAMS, and the doctors at TAMS claimed he was lying. said he never had an elevated test. They checked his records. It wasn't there. And he was just trying to maneuver the system, try to get something he wasn't entitled to, trying to get away out of his cell. He got worse and worse, and they kept telling him, well, you're getting older. You have arthritis. You know, that's why you have all these aches and pains. And he was like 40 years old. Finally, I went down to visit him. And he literally had to crawl into the visiting room. He could not stand up. He could not get in and out of bed. He could barely use the toilet. And I just raised holy hell when I was down there. They finally took him to an outside doctor who realized who actually checked and uh, found the old levels and uh, did his tests and discovered that he not only had cancer, but that at that point it had metastasized. They then immediately put him on to uh, chemotherapy. However, a month later, he died. This is a tragedy that repeats itself over and over again 
even when there isn't a crisis. Now, we settled this case about medical care almost a year ago, and the settlement gave the department really a 10-year period. It was going to take 10 years to bring them up to minimal constitutional standards where they're actually providing medical care that people desperately needed. They were that far behind. Unfortunately, nature has not given us 10 years. Uh, here we are less than a year later, and we have a pandemic, not just on the outside, but spreading through the prison system. And we are simply totally unequipped to deal with that. You know, I think in some sense, the, the most dramatic example of that is the fact that at Stateville, um, they had to bring in the National Guard, not for security purposes, but to provide doctors. So we had to bring in essentially army doctors because the Stateville medical system was so overwhelmed. They just could not deal with such simple things as checking people's temperature, checking people's uh, blood oxygen levels. And they just couldn't do that sort of really simple stuff, let alone actually isolating people let alone testing everybody. One of my favorite conversations this year was an episode I recorded with my friend Miriam Kaba. We talked about digital organizing, which was extra important at the time, since many organizers were in the process of completely reorienting their work due to the pandemic. We talked about a lot of things that day, but in this particular exchange, Miriam really spelled out why organizers and activists have to be storytellers. I've been thinking a lot in, uh, you know, and this is always something that I know you also understand and, and do very well, you know, to organize, you have to be able to tell a story very well, a story that is credible to people, that gives people a plan and some things to do uh, that people think can actually succeed, right? That all those things are super important. So as organizers, we often rely on storytelling to kind of build relationships, to kind of unite our constituencies to figure out how to name problems, to mobilize people. You know, we do we use storytelling in those ways to try to support and propel uh, organizing forward. And I think maybe part of what you were mentioning about the online sphere is that people confuse telling with storytelling. Yes. You know? Um, like telling somebody something is not the same thing as storytelling, which kind of asks questions of people, which forces you as you're tell doing storytelling to kind of listen actively as you're telling the story, because that story is critical to the building of the relationships we're going to need to actually be able to build the power that we need to win. Um, so I think that, you know, a lot of times I see uh, the digital sphere serving as a broadcasting mechanism sometimes, as opposed to the storytelling uh, as central to the relationship building part. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I really wish people would spend more time kind of being kind to themselves and giving themselves space to explore their skills as storytellers and giving themselves kind of creative exercises that really indulge what's special about, you know, their worldview and their ability to kind of envision something and tell a story. I think that having studied creative writing and philosophy prepared me for direct action as much as anything. Like, getting my mind around narrative and what makes people feel things, you know? Yes. So important. What makes people feel things and also what makes people believe you? 
Yes. Um, believe you and not believe you, not necessarily believe you. It doesn't almost matter, like not believe you about the topic you're ranting about, but rather believe you that what you say you believe and that you believe you can win. <laughs> like those things important in doing this work you know like folks have to believe you and they have to believe that you believe it's possible to actually make this thing happen um, and that's why people are going to be more likely to join there's always this tension between like the Alinsky model that some of us grew up in which was you know you appeal to people's self-interest and that's the way you know you agitate people you rub the sores of discontent you do like these kinds of ways of thinking which always felt off to me and it became clear later on why it was off to me because you know it didn't meet it didn't fit my cultural upbringing it didn't fit my you know racial uh kind of socialization it didn't fit like my it, like there were many other things that motivated people beyond self-interest it turned out you know um and so i just had you know i, I could only develop though a critique of that work by actually doing the work and figuring out what it was that didn't sit well with me by trial and error um, over time. And something I want to also raise here, as since we're talking a lot about terminology uh, of organizing and kind of what we mean by all these words, I always am also very concerned when we don't pretty early on talk about power when we are talking about organizing, that ultimately what, you know, when we use the term building power, it's the ability to make your target, your target, the person who has the unique power to give you what you want, right? That's your target. The ability to make your target give you your demand. That's power. Absolutely. Like, yeah, right? Like, and, but we don't actually talk clearly enough about like, that's why we're building quote power is to be able to do that, to gain the ability to make our targets give us what our demands are, what we want. And something important within the concept of power also that power is, there's different types of power based on the type of organizing work that you're doing. So like, it isn't true actually, you know, if you are at a negotiating table at your at your workplace and you're trying to get your boss to do something, the kind of power you need to bring to bear is going to be different than in an electoral organizing campaign where ultimately what people care about is votes, getting them and getting people out to vote for them, right? The metrics of how to deploy power are very contingent on the type of organizing you're actually doing. And, you know, how would you know that? You would only know that if you're actually engaged in doing that work <laughs> to figure it out over a period of time, which is why a lot of arguments that people have, not just online, but in person, to me, are devoid from actual context. Because most of these people haven't actually done any organizing on any of these levels. And they're speaking in some abstractions that don't actually aren't blind by the facts on the ground that you're dealing with on a regular basis, you know? So anyway, I just wanted, to, these are just ideas and thoughts that were in my mind as we began our conversation that I really feel like I haven't heard a lot of conversations kind of breaking the stuff down for folks in that kind of way outside of being in a training. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news publication 
that has thus far survived the decimation of independent news. But we can't create independent news on a corporate landscape without help from readers and listeners like you. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider heading to truthout.org to make a donation today. We heard a bit earlier from my friend Shane Burley, who has been a touchstone for me in these last four years. In an episode called How to Fight Fascism While Surviving a Plague, we talked about COVID-19 and the perils of allowing any further normalization of mass death. We talked about this in the context of what a fascist government could do with a country whose populace is becoming less and less reactive to mass death and atrocity, and how horribly that could spiral. But these words of warning are no less relevant as we move into a new year, under a new administration, because the fascists aren't the only ones who will weaponize our desensitization. Neoliberalism and elite Democrats have likewise always relied on our belief that not everyone can be helped. It's how they get you to accept agendas that likewise lead to thousands upon thousands of deaths that do not have to happen. I know that's not a narrative that anyone wants to process right now, but it's real and we have to. Because we've all been engaged in a battle over what death means in the last year, and in the new year, we will see where that battle takes us, because it's not over, as Shane says. This is a step-by-step -step process to accepting the idea that some people are going to end up being expendable. And remember that in these step-by-step -step process, there is logic behind them. And people are convinced of things. And people actually switch the way that they ascribe value to things. And so by the time we get to a stage where more severe acts of violence are taking place, uh, which is quite possible down the road, um, this would be a step along that way. I don't want to be hyperbolic about what people are saying, but I do want to be real that like there has been a shift that's happening. And when we understand what, where we're going in geopolitics in the next 20, 30, 40 years, um, when scarcity and, for example, border imperialism and climate collapse are very real things that people are kind of living through. It's not just a political issue, but it's very material and people are getting hurt and people are dying. These are the sorts of steps along the way that end up justifying much more draconian policies and give people the, the impetus and actually the passive consent from the public to, to carry out and to recontextualize death and how it works. So I think right now when we're having this discussion, we can look back at other really large genocides and see that there was steps along the way and there was concessions made by people and people changed their, not just their opinions about policies, but they changed their opinions about other people and about what it took to get things done. And so I think that's one part of it. The other part is that this stuff doesn't stop on its own. And it also doesn't stop just by voting patterns. It doesn't stop from polite protest. It doesn't stop from strongly worded arguments, obviously, it stops from people stopping it. Actual interventions in these things is what stops it. That's going to require us going far outside our comfort zone. It has to all be on the table for rethinking and really committing to something that's going to work. The ways that we mark time and contain events in our minds are very important. We understand the world in stories. No one is exempt from that. 2020 is an amalgamation of stories we will be telling ourselves for as long as we live. The relentless losses we endured, the lonely holidays, the times we delivered food and prescriptions, the times we cried alone, the times we got people out of cages, the times we came together to stop a fascist. 
these are stories we will carry with us as we step into a new year and find out what comes next. I want to close the year with some sage words from Brant Rosen, who was one of the first people I interviewed for this show. Brant is a rabbi, an author, and an activist who also worked with me this year to co-organize the Mutual Aid Morning and Healing Project, which provides free counseling to people who are grieving during the pandemic. Struggle is painful, but struggle is also joyful. It needs to be, or uh, it's not going to work. And being able to find meaning in, and love and, and joy in that struggle and being able to promote a vision of the world that sees struggle not just as hard work and often just setback after setback, but actually it's a, it's a way we build community. It's a way we build meaning. It's a way we, we activate love in the world. Uh, and it's a way we generate hope. I mean, that for me is the primary place where hope is found is by the camaraderie that comes from the struggle itself. You know, I'll just say very briefly, my, my new congregation, Tzedek Chicago, which is five years old, is a justice-focused, intentional Jewish congregation. And when we first started, we, um, when we get together on our Sabbath on Friday night, our services tended to be exhausting because we just talked about the struggle and we would actually use the service to organize around specific issues. And it occurred to me pretty early on that this wasn't what people needed or what people wanted. You know, most of the people who belong to our congregation are involved in that struggle every day. And they coming on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, to be rejuvenated, to get the hope you, you were asking about. And early on in building this community, one of the things I realized that the function of, of Shabbat needs to be is about allowing ourselves this 24-hour period to live in the world that we're fighting for. That's how we frame it, that we are going to create that world for each other, uh, which is, I would argue, what Shabbat has always been frankly. In Judaism, it's called Olam Haba, the world to come. And it's not just something that we pray for. On Shabbat, it's something we live in. Uh, and there's all kinds of traditional laws that have been prescribed throughout history about, about what that means. But the bottom line on, at its essence means we're going to cease the work of the last week, which is the struggle for justice and liberation. And we are going to inspire one another and live in that world just for this period of time so that when we go back into it on Saturday night and Sunday, when it's over, we will be all the more replenished and able to uh, engage in that struggle anew. And for me, and I suspect for you as well, that's really where the hope comes from, is, is finding joy in the struggle and finding love in that struggle, um, no matter where it may lead us, because we don't know. You know, there are no guarantees. There's, there's only this work that we have before us. At the year's end, my friends and I have a tradition. On New Year's Eve, we would normally gather in a circle in my living room, just before midnight. We would take turns speaking and name something that we want to leave behind in the year that was, and something that we want to carry with us into the new year. In a way, this episode is my very elaborate answer to that question. These words are what I want to bring with me into the new year, as I try to do my part to write the next page. So I invite you all to join me in carrying these lessons forward as we face the future together, in joy and in struggle. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today, and remember, 
Our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.